Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A New Year's Eve once again. Do they ever stop coming? No, not really. Time marches on and we plod along with it. By this time, I think you all know the procedure. Step one, closely review the past year. Step two, determine what needs to be added, deleted, or changed in your life. Step three, formulate resolutions about those things in step two. Step four, grumble about your failure to keep those resolutions. Yes, promises are very easy to make and very difficult to keep. For no matter how strongly we might desire or how hard we try, and how sincere our intentions, we break more promises than we keep. That's our sinful reality. Nevertheless, though, Christians are a people of promises. We are especially people of the promises given and fulfilled by our promised Savior, Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus that we celebrated a little less than a week ago fulfilled promises that God had made throughout the Old Testament. And even now, we live with promises that are guaranteed and yet unfulfilled. But we stake our present and our future security upon them. In a manner of speaking, we might say that God's promises are the lines that connect the dots of the historical events of the Scriptures. And so it is that tonight's epistle reading implies a very significant event in the life of our newborn Savior Jesus that connects us with Abraham, and that is circumcision. Now this, of course, was a painful procedure that resulted in the shedding of blood, but it also served as a constant reminder to the Israelites that the Messiah was promised to them, and he was coming so that he could shed his blood for their sins. In other words, Jesus' circumcision connects us with Abraham's promise. Now consider, if you will, the following information about circumcision. Yes, it's a bit graphic and painfully descriptive, I'll grant you, but it is a reality of the biblical directive and of history. And we ought not to be squeamish about it or shy away from it any more than we should shy away from the painful, bloody cross of Christ. According to one Bible encyclopedia, in the account of the institution of the covenant between Yahweh and Abraham, circumcision is looked upon as the ratification of the agreement, but it was necessary to inclusion in the covenant that every male child should be circumcised on the eighth day. Another resource says it this way, the Hebrew people performed circumcision on infants, this rite had an important ethical meaning to them. It signified their responsibility to serve as the holy people whom God has called as his special servants in the midst of a pagan world. Circumcision of the Jewish male was required as a visible, physical sign of the covenant between the Lord and his people. And yet still another resource says the following. The ceremony of circumcision is generally done by means of a sharp knife, but in more primitive times, sharp stones were used. As a rule, this act was performed by the father 
although it might be done by any Israelite, and if necessary, by women as well, but never by a Gentile. In later times, the naming of the child accompanied the act of circumcision. The biblical record of God's institution of circumcision in the book of Genesis tells us this. And God said to Abraham, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What this is all about, quite simply, is law. As Paul wrote to the Galatians in that portion of the letter that is in tonight's gospel, or rather epistle lesson, the law was our guardian until Christ came. That is, God gave his law to protect his people. And in addition, it was up to them to be aware that, quite frankly, they could not gain favor by virtue of any of their own accomplishments. It was impossible for them, even as it is it impossible for us, to please God by keeping his law. Because any effort to do so on our part would require complete and perfect obedience. Recall what the Lord told his people in the book of Leviticus about their obligation. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Pretty tough. But the, in the book of James, the apostle writes this, which is even more difficult. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails on one point, has become accountable for all of it. Regarding the law's primary function or purpose, then, St. Paul explains it this way. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The major purpose of the law, then, was to make the Israelites and to make us aware that we are justified by faith and not by the law. That was the ultimate realization that even Abraham made. And we make it here again today. In fact, we read the following about Abraham and his faith. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul echoed that truth to the Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, Paul also wrote to the Romans about this very thing, telling them and us this, For you hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, it's all about our identity 
It's about who we are, and more importantly, it's about whose we are. What the Holy Spirit revealed through Paul is that in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. We receive that identity in baptism, where we have been clothed by Christ. Now, you all know that uniforms are a very clear and unmistakable, visible identification of sports teams and military branches, for example. When we see a well-recognized uniform, we immediately know what team that fan supports or that player plays for or what military branch an individual belongs to. Well, in Old Testament times, circumcision was the identifying sign that a male belonged to the covenant of Israel's God. But now, in New Testament times, baptism is the identifying sacramental sign for both women, men, women and men that we belong to Christ. And Christ is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us. Paul made the connection between circumcision and baptism when he wrote, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Because of all this, all baptized saints are one in Jesus Christ. That is our spiritual identity and reality. No physical distinctions of this world, be they age or gender or nationality or race or ethnicity, can separate the saints of Christ from one another. Jesus and our baptismal robe of His righteousness is our distinctive uniform. It identifies us as members of his team, his unit, his church militant. God had communicated this important message long before Christ's coming when he had the prophet Isaiah write, My God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Because we are Christ's possessions who belong to Jesus, the Spirit leads us to live lives that reflect that reality and that relationship. We know that the holy life, the innocent suffering and death, and the victorious bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ gained us forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. Therefore, be renewed daily in the knowledge of this by God's holy word and by reception of His body and blood and His supper. Resist Satan's temptations to do your own thing. Live a life that is pleasing to Almighty God with thoughts and words and deeds that testify to the fact that you belong to Him. In tonight's Old Testament reading, we heard this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Names. That's an identity thing. Our identity is primarily, primarily given by our name. Our birth certificate bears our given name and our family name, and it identifies us as our parents' children. Our baptism certificate, too, bears the name of the triune God, 
and it identifies us as His children, given the name Christian. The benediction in a worship service is vitally important too because in it, God tells us who we are and whose we are. He does this by putting His own name upon us, just like He did upon the Israelites. It indicates a new beginning, even as we continue to live the new life that was begun in us in our spiritual rebirth, in our baptisms. To leave worship before the benediction, whether it's out of convenience or out of impatience, is to turn your back on and perhaps even reject something very important, that name and that claim of ownership that God has upon you, that He gives you in these important words. So what's in a name then? Is it merely just an identity? Or does it communicate an even greater message? In the case of Jesus, His name meant so much more than just who He was. It also communicated what He came to do, to save all people from their sins. Jesus' circumcision and His name connect us with God's promises, a promise that He made to Abraham and through Abraham to us by faith. It is a promise that Jesus fulfilled. Through the powerful name and the powerful person of Jesus who saved us from our sins, let us therefore live in the identity of our name Christian as we move into this new year and beyond. Let us do so by faithfully worshiping Him, by loving and obeying Him, by faithfully and sacrificially serving Him in one another, and by telling others about Him. God, grant this all for the sake of Jesus, our Holy Savior, in whose name we always pray. Amen.